Uh, Let's pray and then we'll turn to uh, the reading and the proclaiming of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning, Lord. We have just sent uh, our treasure out the door, Lord, not in the form of our offering, but in the form of our children. And we pray for the workers who are with them, Lord, who give so much of themselves each and every week uh, to minister to those children. Uh, The Bible says, one generation shall declare your works to another. And we believe that that's what's going on in our children's ministry. As our children learn uh, to be joyous in the Lord for what he's done for them. So we just pray for that time now, Father, among uh, the the, the children's ministry. We pray that each and every person who serves uh, would do so in your strength, in your power, and proclaim the goodness of your gospel in your strength. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that as we think about the end, that we would not be uh, morbidly or technically interested in the details of the end so that we can be wise in our own sight, but that so we can feel rooted and grounded in Christ and not be moved as the whole of the world falls apart in chaos at the end. Uh, Lord, we know that from the beginning you created all things well, and in the end all things will work out in such a way that we will say, you are good, and you deserve honor, and you deserve praise, and you deserve glory, and we were right inasmuch as it depended on us to trust in you and to persevere in faith and to seek our joy and satisfaction in you. When it is all over, You will be vindicated. All will declare your glory, and we will find a deep satisfaction in knowing that we were chosen, but that we chose to trust rightly in the Savior. You are good, and you deserve praise and glory from humanity. And in the end, we will see it made plain. Because the Bible says, For now we do not see the Lord Jesus reigning over all things, but one day we will see all things subjected to Him. All things will be put under His feet. You will be our treasure and our glory and our joy, Lord Jesus. I pray that you would protect my heart and mind, establish my words as I speak now. Father, may we exult and delight in the good things that we proclaim from your word. Uh, May we fear falling short. May we trust in the cross of Christ always. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, As we come to the end, I think it's a good time as any to to get vulnerable and to share maybe some of my own uh, failures or um, some some of my own uh, weaknesses. I confess, living in this day and age, that YouTube has ruined me uh, in terms of... um, some of my own failings. Uh, for somebody who grew up only watching ice skating because people occasionally fell, YouTube, see, I told you, I, I warned you I was going to share. Uh, YouTube, YouTube cuts out all the boring parts of ice skating and, and makes it so that you can just watch them fall. Uh, weddings, we just, we just had a wedding in our church, Matt and Monique, a wonderful wedding, no disasters whatsoever. Wedding disasters preserved forever for all to see on YouTube. Uh, I watched 
this week, uh, one of these videos that has gone viral as an entire wedding party stood, who thought this was a good idea, on a boat dock. And they're all standing there and, and rejoicing in happiness together. And you can see the whole platform moving and you know what's happening next. The whole party goes right into the drink. Am I, you're not calling up the video, are you? Okay, good, all right. Hi, Becky. We're FaceTiming the sermon, I think, uh, to someone else. Um, people falling into water, people, people falling downstairs. I mean, I don't rejoice in the crisis, but there's just something that's cringeworthy about it that like, I cannot turn away when it comes across my screen. I have to watch. Um, the videos that I love the most are those cringeworthy videos that, that, that exude that sympathetic response, you know, where you're like, why is this disaster happening? Somebody please make it stop, but it's been preserved and nothing can be changed about it. Um, one of the kinds of videos that makes me cringe inwardly, and I wish I could save the person who's, who's involved in this, is, is when someone sings the national anthem. Uh, there's a sense of um, vindication, perhaps, that, 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 that comes. I'm a patriot. I love my country. I, I get all goosebumpy when they sing the national anthem over the little microphone at swim meets. Uh, but when someone messes it up, there's, there's a bit of delight in there. Maybe they should have prepared a little bit more. Uh, but there's also uh, a sense of tragedy, watching some pop star who has, who has gained and achieved notoriety in our country because of our economy and because of our freedom. They can, they can sing and perform, and they get up in front of a crowd at a baseball game, assuming that they know the lyrics to the national anthem, and then they just bomb all over. There's a sense of, you should have known better. Like, didn't you know you didn't know the lyrics? What's wrong with you? There's a parable, I think, for me, there, uh, rejoicing in someone else's failure. That's not good. Rejoicing when someone assumes what should be explicit. Uh, they've, they've assumed that they know the lyrics to the song. They get up to sing it and they fail. We shouldn't exult in someone else's failure. But there's a deep reminder, I think, that occurs to me that there are probably areas in my life where I have forgotten the lyrics. And so I, I shouldn't triumph or exult when someone else fails. Instead, I should feel sympathy for them. I don't know that there's much hope for the YouTube habit. People keep posting videos and I keep watching them. But perhaps in terms of the Christian life, there is hope. Uh, when it comes to the end of all things, we have, we've spent months now, we looked at Genesis chapter 1 and we saw the beginning, we saw the fall of humanity, we moved to God's promise for the world, God's promise to bring salvation, and then we fast-forwarded from that promise to the cross and saw God redeeming and changing the human heart through the death of Christ on our behalf. And then we looked at the mission of the church last week, and now this week as we come to the end, it seems like sometimes we forget the lyrics to the songs that should guide us as a church. Listen to Psalm 96 in the song that the psalmist declares that we sing. The psalmist says, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. 
Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. There, do you see the mission of the church? Declare his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Why? Because there are no such thing as other gods, verse 5 says. All the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. The next three statements are commands. Verse 7, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. We rightly say when we proclaim the death of Jesus that we have all that we need to be saved in Christ. And in that sense, the future in which the goodness and the fullness of all that God is doing in the scriptures, we can say that it is accomplished on the cross and that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. We have it now. Ephesians 1.3, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. But we can say in terms of the biblical storyline that we are in the middle and that there is much that is revealed that has not yet happened. Psalm 96 reminds us that then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. All creation will rejoice before the Lord Verse 13, when he comes, when he comes to judge the earth. Acts 1.8 describes the mission of the church. Now you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's the mission now. But we're given a look forward in Acts 1.11. The disciples stand there and watch Jesus ascend into heaven, received back into the glory of the presence of the Father. Two angels stand with the disciples and say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken from you up into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus will come again. And that is the beginning of the end. He promises us this all over the scriptures. We find this in John chapter 14, verse 3. 
If I go, Jesus says, predicting his departure, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. God says, I will not leave you or forsake you. And so we live today in the fullness of the salvation plan of God, having received the gift of faith and the righteousness of Christ. If we've trusted in Christ for our salvation, we have all that we need, and yet we live in hope of more. We've spoken of the Bible in weeks past in terms of Act 1, all that God is doing. He creates a nation through Abraham, and then through that nation he brings Messiah to the cross and provides salvation for the world. That's the story of the Bible from Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, all the way to John chapter 19. That's the whole Bible right there. God provides salvation through a nation. But then the next act begins when Jesus ascends into heaven and he says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. The end of what we could call Act 2 or the age of the church, the story that we're in right now, doesn't end with Jesus ascending. It doesn't end with the cross. It ends with his return to claim his church in glory. We're looking and waiting for the coming of Messiah. Jesus clearly links the proclamation of the gospel and what comes next in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. What does the Great Commission say? Go into all nations, make disciples of them, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all the things I've commanded to you. And Jesus says, lo, or behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. At the end of the age, Jesus will still be with us in the spiritual presence of the Holy Spirit, but at the end of the age, he will return. The age that we live in began at creation. It met its fullness in the cross, and we are heading to a point which is some call the last days, which we call the end of the age, at which the world will be destroyed and dissolved. Listen to what Peter says about this. The day, this is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. You won't expect it. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Everything that exists in this order that we see right now will one day pass away and the world will be renewed and reinvigorated, healed and purified. If that's true, what sort of people ought we to be. I believe there's a great problem alive in the Christian church today. Many people deny the reality of the created order, that God created all things. And that introduces great problems into our theology and our worldview. But I believe equally great problems are created when we believe that Jesus came and died and 
Whatever happens next, people aren't really clear on that. Where did he go? Did he die? They're, they're not really sure. It's not really a big deal because they say that Jesus was just a good teacher. And that if we all just lived the way that he taught, then the world would be a better place. This introduces massive problems because the Bible teaches us he's coming again. And the world is going to change. And everything about the world is going to change. The Bible doesn't just begin with a supernatural creation. It ends. What comes next is a supernatural end to the story. All things aren't just going to continue the way they have from the beginning. There's going to be radical changes again. Just as there was a creation and a flood, there will be a consummation and Jesus will return and things will be transformed and made new. To deny these realities is to deny the bookends of our faith. And right in the middle is an equally incredible idea that a dead man rose from the dead and that in his rising, we have a guarantee that one day we will all be raised if we trust in Christ. If all things are to be dissolved, Peter says, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? The Bible testifies in many places that the church age will end, it will culminate, it will be fulfilled in the return of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 links up mission and the return of Jesus. Paul says, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? He's saying, what will we rejoice in when Jesus comes? Here's his answer to that question. Is it not you? Is it not all those whom we've shared the gospel with, who've become believers, whom God has given life to, who've trusted? Isn't that what we're most excited about? Because all of our cars and houses and paintings and iPods and pads and MacBooks and stuff, it's all going to burn up. We'll rejoice over the end of our Windows computers, but we may be sad when our, when our Apple products are destroyed. But all of those things, that was a joke, all of those things, will not, they will not last Men and women, their souls, the word of God and his kingdom, that will last forever. Another verse about the end of all things, Matthew 24, 30. Ooh, don't do that again. Then, 24, 30, then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He'll send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Jesus is coming. Paul says this in Titus 2.13, that we are waiting for our blessed hope. Not a Republican president. That's not what he says here. Not the release of a Another possible Star Wars trilogy. It's not coming, sci-fi fans. It will never come. These aren't the things that we're waiting for. We're not waiting for the release of the next greatest phone or for retirement. Our blessed hope, Titus says, is this, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. You should rejoice at the marvels of human technology and say, what a mind God has put into man. And we should rejoice when 
good government. And I'm not saying Republican government is good government. That's not my point here. We should rejoice in good government or good economic times. We should eat and rejoice on July 4th and eat burgers and delight in our freedom. But these are not the ultimate goal. The ultimate end and the ultimate joy for the Christian is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what should we expect then in the end? Let's just talk timeline this morning. I never really talk about end times, so I figured this morning I'll just kind of compress it all into one message. Um, This is going to be like a, a, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich made by a kid. Too much stuff for too little bread. Probably stuff oozing all over. You're going to have a bunch of questions. You're going to say, what? Just email me. Um, will there actually be an Act 3? After Jesus returns, will something else happen? There are two views on this. One is what's called ah, millennialism. Jesus returns. And that there's not an actual, literal thousand-year period on earth. But there's this figurative sense in which God is reigning over the world right now in Christ, and that that is symbolized by the number 1,000. When Christ returns, heaven begins. That's called amillennialism. There's a second view, which is called premillennialism, which means that when Jesus returns, that there will be a literal thousand-year period on earth in which Jesus Christ will reign over the world as its righteous king. Pre-millennium, pre-millennialism means a millennium before eternity, right? So there's two views. One is Jesus returns, eternity. The second view is Jesus returns, thousand-year kingdom, and then eternity. So we shall ever be with the Lord. How do we come down with regard to these teachings? Let me just say one thing about amillennialism. There are a lot of godly people who believe that this explains the literature of the Bible in a comprehensive and acceptable way. And I would say we ought to be charitable towards them. Uh, Many good and godly people believe this. They are not liberals. They do not deny the inerrancy of Scripture. They trust Scripture and they believe that this is the truth. But I believe it's a deficient view. I believe that there's a tremendous problem when you say that the thousand-year reign of Christ over humanity is summed up in the life of the church. Because so much then of what's promised in the Old Testament, we'll look at some passages in a couple minutes, just gets summed up in the phrase, this is the church. In Revelation chapter 20, where the millennium comes into existence, the Bible says that Satan is bound for a thousand years. And I believe if the devil is bound right now, then he he is bound with a rubber chain. Because he seems alive and well and active on planet Earth. And not restrained. The Bible describes a thousand year period where righteousness prevails. That means that all laws are obeyed and all laws are just and righteous. This is a good thing. Bible scholar Thomas Dehaney Bernard, who was actually amillennial, despite his amillennialism, not believing the thousand-year reign is is an actual thing, this is what he says. He says, take from the Bible the final vision of the heavenly Jerusalem, and we have not just lost an important revelation, but a conclusion that interprets and validates all that went before 
A Bible that did not end by building a city of God for us would fail to provide much of what we need and leave much of the Bible's contents unexplained. The Bible begins in a garden. It begins with the declaration that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, that the righteousness and the glory of God would fill the earth. Jesus is promised to us as a king who will reign on David's throne. And without a literal fulfillment of that, without Christ reigning on earth, I believe the world will be without a visible demonstration of what a truly benevolent, good, godly monarchy looks like. Because all we've enjoyed as human beings up to this point is just the capriciousness of humanity. Some good rulers, some bad rulers. Lots of ineffective, defective laws and bad government and struggle. What will righteousness actually look like? We will see it. And we will know it. And we will delight in it and rejoice in it. And at the end of a thousand years, the Bible says the devil will be set free and humanity in large part will rebel against God again. And that proves what? That proves that even with an extended period of good government, the main problem is the problem of the human heart. And that unless all things are made new, righteousness will never reign. And God will remake the world at that time. And the heavenly Jerusalem will descend and rest on the renewed earth. And we will forever be with the Lord, rejoicing with him forever. Okay, will there be an act three? I say yes. When will it take place? Okay, here's the answer. It'll take place after the fullness of the Gentiles has been gathered in and Christ returns. I believe this will be a valid experiment. If you don't know what a Gentile is, just look around this room. I do not believe we have any Jews among us this morning. Uh, although Jews are part of God's program, they are God's people. He is working with them and in them and through them. Uh, but God has declared his heart to gather all kinds of people from all kinds of nations to himself. When the fullness of the Gentiles, people who are not Jews, is gathered in, Christ will return. Let me defend this from Scripture. Romans 11.25 says this, Lest you be wise in your own sight, Paul speaking to a Gentile church who has perhaps gotten arrogant about the fact that Gentiles are turning to Christ while Jews are not. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be aware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This is what Paul is saying. God worked through the nation to bring Messiah to the cross, but the nation consistently rejected God, and so God broke off the nation of Israel. He cast it aside. He moved all of the faithful, believing Jews into the church, and he is now working through the church in the world. When will Act 3 take place? After the fullness of the Gentiles has been gathered in and Christ returns. Matthew 24, verse 3, and then verse 14 answered this question. As Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, and they said, Tell us, Jesus, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Jesus answers this way. He says, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. 
When the gospel is proclaimed and people from every tribe and tongue and nation have an opportunity to believe and receive, then the end will come. Jesus asks, or the disciples ask this question in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is it kingdom time, thousand-year reign of Christ? Is it, is it time for that now, Jesus? Is that going to happen now? You've been raised from the dead. This is good. We're ready for your kingdom. And so this is what Jesus says. Notice he doesn't say, no kingdom. He says, not yet. The Lord says... In response to the disciples' question, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Right? That's written on a card, in an envelope, somewhere. Someone's got it. And, and one day, right, somebody's going to open up that envelope and hand it to Jesus, and he's going to be like, yes, time to come back. And he's going to come for the church. But only the Father knows that. He's got that. That was a joke. There is no actual envelope. It's not for you to know the times or seasons. But, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Read, you'll be my witnesses first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Don't worry about the kingdom, Jesus says. Worry about the proclamation of the gospel to all nations. Because that's the business of Act 2. So what happens to Israel when Jesus returns in Act 2? Three, Amos 9, 11 through 15, which, by the way, shows up in Acts, and so we're going to dig into this in a big-time way later on in Acts. But that's going to be a while. This is what Amos says. He says, in that day, speaking of the day of the Lord, he says, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that's fallen, David's house, David's tent. It's fallen over. There is no king on David's throne right now that the visible world can see. He says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that's fallen, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. I will plant them on their land. They shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them. The scripture teaches that the nations of the world will seek the Lord in a revived Israel. One day, the nation that exists on that land right now is a sovereign nation and deserves our attention and our respect and our allegiance, but not because they are God's people. The nation that is on the land right now is disobedient from God, just like every other nation in the world. They are not God's covenant people in a unique way. God loves them, the Bible says, for the sake of the forefathers, but yet they are hardened and separated from God. This is the hard truth of Romans 9 through 11. Read in there. You're going to see all this perfectly spelled out. But the Bible teaches that one day Israel will be restored and the nations will seek the Lord in a revived Israel. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 say, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and all the nations shall flow to it. They shall, it says in Isaiah 11, 9 through 10, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Is it a fair fulfillment of that verse to say, oh, that's the church? That doesn't make any sense. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, 
This is the descendant of David who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire. Talking about Jesus reigning in Jerusalem and people coming and streaming to him. The Bible says his resting place shall be glorious. Numbers 14, 21 declares and promises that all the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Interestingly, all these prophecies speak not of the church, but of the nation Israel. And that there will be a hardening of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles, and then all Israel will be saved. So three questions. What revives Israel? How does the church fit into the millennium? And then what is the order of events? If you're nervous, I will promise you I am not putting up a chart on the PowerPoint screen this morning. Um, If you were hoping for a chart, allow me to crush your hopes and dreams. There will be no chart. I believe in charts, just not about the end times, because if I do, I think we ought to write them in pencil. Um, What revives Israel? Hosea chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. The children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. This is in Hosea. David's been dead for centuries. Speaking about David's descendant, they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. They'll seek David their king. They will come in fear to the Lord, the man, the son of David, the son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ reigning on earth. Isaiah 2, 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. What is this speaking of other than regeneration, the saving of Israel? They shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The Bible speaks in similar terms of the salvation of individual souls. But here it's speaking of the people whom God calls Israel, whom he will call to himself and revive one day. Romans 11, probably the hardest passages to understand in the Bible. Romans 9 through 11. Romans 11, starting in verse 11. So I ask, did Israel stumble in order that they might fall? Does God, when he breaks off the branch of Israel, cast it aside and cast it into hell and judgment forever? Paul says, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. If their trespass means riches for the world, if Israel's rejection of the gospel means that the gospel goes to the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, Paul says, how much more will their full inclusion mean? He says, if Israel rejects the gospel and so the gospel goes to the world, and that's good news, what will it mean when God one day revives that whole generation? How much more will their full inclusion mean? 
Listen to what Paul then says. Lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. This will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Jesus will return. And I believe that the calling of Israel to salvation and the regeneration of that entire generation to a man will mean the resurrection from the dead for those who are dead in Christ. When Jesus returns, it will mean new life for those who've died. All those whom we have planted in the ground in hopes of their future resurrection, we've said they are absent from the body, but they're present with the Lord. They will be reunited with their bodies and they will come to Christ in all of their glory. Wow, it is 1154. And I am on page 5 of 12 pages of notes. <laughs> too much jelly and peanut butter for too little bread. So how does the church fit into the millennium? I believe that just as the nation was the appropriate channel of God's grace to bring Messiah to the cross, and just as the church is an appropriate channel to take the grace of Christ on the cross and his resurrection life to the nations, I believe that a nation, the revived Israel, will be the appropriate channel to rule all nations. And so I believe the whole of the church, the redeemed, regenerate, saved church, that will be taken up to meet Christ in glory as he returns will be completely worked into the new nation Israel. Don't ask me how that looks. I think it will be resurrected folks walking around with unresurrected folks. I think the world is going to look different. I don't have a whole lot more details. The Bible says, though, that in the absence of the apostles that the love of men and women will grow cold and that we will accumulate teachers for ourselves who will declare what our itching ears desire. I think there is a danger, danger that just like Israel, the church might be cut off because of unfaithfulness. And I don't mean the true church, but the institution of the church in the world. I believe there will always be a church. There is a church in oppressive China, there's a state church that does not preach the gospel, but then there is an underground church that needs to hide and protect its own existence. There will always be a church, but, but to the visible world, it may not look like the church described in the scriptures. The Bible's, Bible in a parable describes that the field has been sown with both wheat and tares, which means that those who truly follow Christ are in the church that can be seen, and those who do not follow Christ are in the church that can be seen. Will the apostolic, evangelical, word-bound church that worships Christ and finds its confidence only in the cross and finds its truth only in the word endure? I believe it will, but I don't believe that it will always be met with freedom. It will find joy in persecution 
and in the grace of God and the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. I don't have time to go through nearly any of what is remaining. Let me sum this way. The church that we look at in the world today, not just the church in America, I talked about the church in Africa last week, I believe the church in China, the church in, in, in Europe, the church in South America is in the same condition. The church is a mess. We have enemies opposing from outside the church. Revelation 2.2, 2, Jesus says to the church, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know that you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and you have not grown weary. There are enemies pressing on the church from outside the church. Our country, our state is currently kind of friendly with the church. Don't expect that to always endure because it's an anomaly in the history of humanity. But there are also enemies inside of the church. Jesus says this to the church in Revelation 2.4, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. It becomes easy to move beyond the cross and to get about our ministry program or about missions or about personal holiness and forget delight in the gospel. Or we can become infected by false teaching from inside. Revelation 2.20, I have this against you, Jesus says, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. You could substitute the name of any number of false teachers. She calls herself a prophetess. She's teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. The church is constantly struggling with apostasy within and falling away. And so we have great need for confidence in Christ to protect us from outside enemies or to give us grace to endure. And we have great need for repentance and biblical teaching and endurance. The good news is we have a victorious, risen Savior who will return. And so how do we respond this morning? Page 7, last page driving home. Our response to the presence of Jesus in the church should be to open the door. Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's not knocking on the door of your heart there in Revelation 3. He's knocking on the door of the church and he says, if you open the door to me, I will come in and have fellowship with you. We must constantly fight to keep the door open to reopen it, to revive, to fight cooling within our passions, to be fired up for the gospel of Christ, to fight internal enemies, to say it is worth it to lose presence or funding or members or honor within the community for what's written in this book. We will do it because this is the goodness of God made plain to us. We will stand on these words because they're no empty words. They're our very life. But we're also, and I don't mean that arrogantly, I don't mean, I mean, this is what's important. We ask people, beg and plead them to realign their minds with regard to this word. Open the door, but second, hold fast. Jesus says over and over in Revelation, to the one who overcomes. 
We're called to fight those external enemies. Persecution will come. Trial will come. Pain will come. Jesus has promises for those who overcome. Keep the door open. Hold fast to Christ. He will come. The Bible says that then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's our blessed hope. In the meantime, what do we do? Here's the high guilt section and then the low guilt section. First, be vigilant. Be on mission. This is why we're going to Acts. Matthew 24, 42 to 40. Six. Therefore, stay awake. You do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. If you told me tonight at 11 o'clock an intruder is going to walk through your front door because he's got a key and he's going to come in, I will be standing there with a bat. I will be ready. The Bible says we don't know when he's coming. So be vigilant. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. What is your life about? Is it about the mission of proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus so that when he comes in his fullness, you will have hearts and minds to present to him and you will say, I won these in your strength through your gospel for my joy and your glory. That's the high guilt section. So if you're not doing that, get at it. Low guilt. Rejoice. Romans 1.5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You don't stand in the presence of the fullness of the glory of God, but if you trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you trust in Christ that he gives you his righteousness which he purchased on the cross, you will stand in the presence of the glory of God. Are you worried that the next president might be the Antichrist? Why? Bring it on. Antichrist comes, we meet Jesus. This is good news. Yes, we may never make it to that vacation destination or that car that you just put money down. down. You might not get as much mileage on it as you want. I've got tons of books that I want to read and I'm never going to get through them. I don't care. Bring it on. Jesus says, I am coming soon. What should our response be from the end of the book of Revelation? Come, Lord Jesus. So what's the order of events? Matters that are not clearly revealed. Okay? When the tribulation occurs. When Israel will be renewed. When a rebellious church will be removed. When the rapture of the saints will happen. The true church. When will that stuff happen? Don't know. Got some ideas. Not really interested in sharing a whole lot of them. Because I write them in pencil. They may change. But here's what's clearly revealed. Worthy is the lamb who was slain 
to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, and he will. He says, I am coming. Do you say from your whole heart, come, Lord Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to, to, to hear your word this morning, Lord. Who can speak confidently and fully and, and with all I's dotted and T's crossed about the future? Your servants, those who believed in you, your people, Israel, they thought that they knew the scriptures, they studied it, but when Messiah came, they missed him. May we have two days on our calendar. Today, the day in which we live, which you have made, which we should rejoice and be glad, and that day, the day in which you come. Let's not, Father, I should say, may we not, Father, worry about the day in which persecution arises or the day in which freedom is taken away or the day in which we, we do this or that. May we live this day for that day when you come in all of your glory. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, who has not fully trusted in you in a room this big, surely there is more than one. I pray that they would know that there is no hope of surviving judgment apart from the work of Christ, but that surviving judgment is easy when we trust in what you have accomplished for us on the cross, Lord Jesus. Your righteousness freely given for the sins of the world, for all who trust in you. I pray that anybody here who does not know you would trust in you this morning. Father, may we confidently live into the future knowing that you are in control and that you will return and that all things will turn out for the good of those who are called according to your purpose and that we will forever dwell with you in your glory. Joyful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close, we'll have some people down front.